Welcome back. It's episode 48 of The Build. You're here, you made it. We're in our Danny Briere era. Our J.T. Wyman period, our Miroslav Guren chapter. Uh, the Briere year in Montreal, was a, that was the, the 2014 conference final year. And Briere came in out of that, that buyout with Philadelphia, I believe. And if Montreal didn't have a power trip obsessed coach, we might have gotten more out of Briere in Montreal. There were stories about, I think Briere wrote one in his book about, you know, the Canadians struggling in shootouts and Briere going to Michel Therrien and saying, hey, I'm pretty decent at these. Can you put me in? And Therrien was, you know, was agreeable in the moment, but then in practice the next day when they did a shootout drill, he shot everyone on the team except for Danny Briere. So pretty vindictive dude. Um, Come to think of it, the NHL loves recycling the same coaches over and over again, but Montreal was Michel Therrien's last head coaching gig. Uh, he was an assistant in Philly under Alain Vigneault, which is a real, a real who's who of who shouldn't coach in the NHL anymore. Um, the Flyers are entering their Danny Briere era in the moment as well. And they look to be in really good hands with Danny. I know that the the you know we're we're very early on in their their rebuild, but even with the Michkov pick aside, he seems to really understand that it's time to move on from whatever the Flyers had built in Philadelphia under you know Chuck Fletcher and GMs of the past. Some cruel joke having episode forty eight come right after Danny Breer walked up on stage and took the dude we wanted the most. But this isn't about the Flyers' rebuild. It's about the Habs' rebuild. And the draft did not inspire a ton of confidence in the Habs' vision for this rebuild. So let's wrap up the 2023 draft. I know it seems like it was eight, it's ancient history, but it was it was less than a week ago at this point. Um, I haven't had time to go through all the scouting reports for the players' picks during the second day of the draft. And, you know, just anecdotally, it seems like scouting folks are not thrilled with the selections the Canadians made in rounds two through seven. Um, I say two, they didn't even have a second round pick. But the thought process is what I'm most interested in here. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've said in the past, you know, teams say they don't draft for need. They're filthy liars. Every, they, every single team in this league drafts for need in some capacity, whether it's with their first pick or their last pick. Um, and the Canadians, I think, very much went for need here. They went with three goalies on day two. Jacob Fowler was picked 69th overall. Quentin Miller, 128th overall. And Evgeny Vaholkin, uh was picked 144th overall. Listeners of this show will know that it's a, it was a, an organizational need for the Canadians in net. Um, I thought they'd pick a goalie or two in this draft and then maybe take some flyers on college or f- junior free agents. But I definitely was not expecting them to go three goalies um, in this draft in one day. Um, more on that philosophy, you know, soon because I think Mar- Martin Lapointe and Nick Bobrov speaking um, sort of flies in the face of what that what the, the you know developing goaltenders is in the NHL. Um, three forwards selected: Florian Jacki went 101st overall. Of course, he's our younger brother. Sam Harris went 133rd overall, and Philip Erickson went 165th overall. 
From what I've read, Jack I went far too soon, and scouting folks are not in love with either of the other two selections. Um, for a team in need of, of offensive upside, not to leave to to leave the draft without any player with real offensive NHL upside is is pretty disappointing. Uh, two defensemen ra- round out the 2023 Canadians draft class with Bogdan Kanush- Kanushkov. I need to work on the pronunciation of that one. Going 110th overall and Luke Middlestat going 197th. Obviously, David Reinbacher is the headliner of the 2023 defensive class for the Canadians and likely the league. But the Canadians go overager on the other two defensemen they took in the second day of the draft. Um, afterwards, the Canadians did a thing I really didn't like, and that's put Director of Player Development Martin Lapointe and Director of Amateur Scouting Nick Bobroff in front of a microphone. When asked about the Reinbacher pick, Bobroff had the following to say, Obviously, it's no mystery to anyone how difficult it is to acquire certain assets, what it takes to acquire them, and we all watch the playoffs. And for two months of the year, we get reminded what works and what wins, then maybe we tend to forget for 10 months, and then we get reminded again. We felt that David, given what he's done this year and last year, his growth and potential are very intriguing and difficult to obtain. Absolutely no arguments there for me. I think that that's a, a spot-on rationale for picking a guy like Reinbacher in a vacuum, right? If if there wasn't a Mitchkoff available, you know, I could th- this pick makes sense. If Reinbacher is the guy he thinks he's going to be, he's a difficult kind of player to acquire. Um, you know, that's why the Moritz Sider comparison keeps popping up because the Red Wings probably jumped the line a little bit for a guy like Moritz Sider. Um, he goes on to say, uh, we see that every draft teams try to trade up and get that guy. We are fortunate he was there for us and we have high hopes for him. When he said that, he was kind of like side-eyeing the, the crowd a little bit, the, the you know, the pool of reporters. This really leads me to believe that the Canadians thought teams were proposing trades with them for the fifth overall pick in order to trade up to get David Reinbacher. I feel fairly confident that at least the Flyers' offers to move up were not to move up to take David Reinbacher, but perhaps others wanted to. It's really hard to say. Uh, when asked why dynamic scoring was passed up in favor of what Reinbacher brings, Bobrov had the following to say, and this one's a doozy. I think in this case, there were not only attributes that we love in the player, but the knowns that we have in the player versus many of the unknowns that that may exist with the others. It's a very difficult asset to obtain. We felt that it was the right place, the right player, and we're building a culture. We want certain things that permeate that culture as we keep building this. We felt that this player embodies the type of culture that Jeff Kent, Marty, and the coaching staff are trying to build. That was not a trivial matter to us. Culture was an important word. Clearly, it was important considering Bob Ruff said culture four times. In one soundbite, he just he just burped out the same word four times. I'm all for building a good culture on a hockey team. I really, really am. But not expounding on what is meant by culture leaves a gap that is almost always filled with, we just think he's a cool dude who was nice to us. And, you know, a side note from that, If you are building a culture and you are so afraid of letting the wrong people in, I don't believe that you think you have a particularly strong culture. It seems like you want guys who are who 
are, you know, all of the same ilk to be coming into a, a lineup at the same time, which just isn't how you build successful teams. It's not how you build successful teams, not only in hockey, but in, in, in the real world. Not everyone you hire at, at, you know, for a position is going to, you know, immediately fit the culture. That's why you, you, you have orientations for them so that they learn the culture. That's why you train them so they learn the culture. This idea that these 18-year-old kids are supposed to, you know, automatically identify and, and ascribe to the culture that the, the Montreal Canadiens, a team they don't yet play for, it's silly. It's also silly. And also, we, we see some really questionable dudes get the good locker room guy label, while others have the, the off-ice issues label that's almost never explained and follows guys throughout their career, like Dougie Hamilton or Nazem Kadri. But I don't think you really need to explain why hockey doesn't seem to universally love a guy like Nazem Kadri. So in my estimation, you can be forgiven for rolling your eyes at this answer from Bob Ruff when... You know, in the same draft, you have Tom Fitzgerald of the Devils going on TV and talking about how he wanted to swing for upside on every pick. It makes the Canadians seem like that dinosaur of an organization that we were trying to leave behind. That Jeff Gorton talked about over and over about modernizing the Canadians. He apparently has still a ton of work to do in that department. And it shouldn't come that, you know, as that much of a surprise considering that the you know, a lot of the same faces that we've seen in the scouting department and on the draft floor are still there. Like, Marty Point is still there. When they were asked why they took KHL players with later picks in the draft, even though Kent Hughes said that one of the defining factors in not picking Michkov was not being able to see him live, Bob Ruff said this, Well, later in the draft, you have different buckets. Some of them are emptying and some of them are fuller. And we look at where is the upside. In this case, later on in the draft, the upside was living in that particular bucket. There was still talent. There were still positive elements in both the D and the goalie. Those buckets were still containing talent. But talent was disappearing fairly quickly. At that point in the draft, we felt like we we did a lot of homework. And we felt the risks were very low and the rewards were potentially very high. So it's a mitigation of risk. I have listened to this clip a few times. I have transcribed it to the point that you have just read it. I do not think I fully understand what Nick Bobrov says. Maybe someone can help me out here, but the buckets idea was entirely lost on me. Are the buckets characteristics? Are they locations in the world? I'm entirely lost. I can't help but feel that he was not prepared for the question or at the very least did not articulate his point very well. It's and it was a it was a really good question, you know, and I think I think easily, you know, I think the answer that I would have been comfortable with is, you know, those those later round picks aren't as valuable as that first one. You know, we felt, you know, you, you feel that maybe with a pick with the sixth round, you might even be able to get that player in your next pick in the seventh round because of how different everybody's draft board looks at that point. This whole buckets thing just, I think, muddied the waters a whole lot. Like, it was very difficult to follow. And maybe I'm alone on that. I, that, that that's, that's my opinion. Um, LaPointe was asked in French specifically why they passed on Matt Bamichkov and translated. He said, we did not disdain his talent. He is very talented, competitive, works well at the bottom of the ice. On the other side, it's a little worse, but you live with his mistakes. But also, there were so many unknowns. Three years of waiting. So we leaned towards David. 
perhaps I'm being a little obtuse with what I'm about to say, but I don't buy I don't buy that whatsoever. Three years of unknowns is too long. You just drafted three goalies in the same draft. Like goalies are historically, you know, players that take a whole lot longer to develop into NHLers. They're at at like on the fastest timeline, three years away from playing games from the Canadians. And that's if everything goes perfectly well. And you find, you know, environments for them to play in where they're going to be the number one guy playing a lot of hockey. Maybe they should have asked uh, Bogdan Kanushkov if, if he was planning on joining the KHL. Because he's already an overager at 20 years old who right after the draft, signed a three-year extension in the KHL. He'll be 23 when it ends. This this too long, you know, too long to wait thing seems to fly in the face of what they did with the rest of their picks. And that's not to say that I'm expecting that they want guys in the fourth round and up to be playing in the NHL within a year or two. That's not what I'm saying. Taking three goalies and a player who immediately re-signed with his KHL team for three more years seemed to immediately contradict that thought from the point. Also, the NHL always asks clubs to not talk about players on other teams. We just saw it when Kent Hughes, before the first round of the draft, was asked about um, Pierre-Luc Dubois, and he said, well, I can't comment on that. The NHL doesn't want us to. For the point to criticize and critique a player drafted by another team, I wonder if the Canadians are got a talking to for that from the NHL. Because that seems, if I if I was the Philadelphia Flyers, I'd be a little upset that a team is is, you know, taking an opportunity in front of a microphone to critique my player. So the Canadians draft as a whole left a lot to be des- uh, desired. It did so on night one. It did so as it unfolded. And so did the way that their scouting team defended and justified it. It did not, you know, we can we can disagree with, you know, their evaluations of players. Because, you know, they, they've got... And we hear this all the time. They have a they have way more assets than we do when it comes to analyzing these players and and you know scouting them. Their responses to these questions to me did not inspire a ton of confidence in their process. You know, for the first for your you know a top five pick. For you to focus that much on culture at that point, it it makes me like it makes it sound like you're not all that thrilled with the player that you got, and that you're 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 using these intangibles as a way to you know sell us on the pick. Of course, judging draft classes the day they happen is a risky exercise, and a, an exercise that. Ultimately, I don't really find all that helpful. But that's all we have to go by right now in the moment. So in the moment, they, they did not do particularly well in this draft class. But the real the, the only thing that matters is how it plays out in the future. Are these guys going to be NHLers? In the moment, it's an odd draft. 
I'm not a big fan of the term honeymoon phase when it comes to like anything. I think, you know, from a from a marriage perspective, like I think it, it it's used by people who are miserable in their own lives um, to, you know, try to bring down a, a, a marriage that is happy. <laughs> but I don't I don't like that phase, but I understand why people use it, especially in in terms of the Canadians front office. It seems it seems like, you know, a lot of folks seem to think that this honeymoon phase with the front office with Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon is over. Um, I I think I definitely agree with that. This was their, you know, their big moment. This was, you know, this this draft was to Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon what the P.K. Subban trade was to Mark Bergevin. And I'm not saying that it's going to have the same impact on this roster. I, I, I don't know. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that it's it's angered, a, you know, a, a very significant portion of this fan base. And according to Arpen Basu at The Athletic, that sentiment is not lost on the front office, that they know that this draft was not well-received by, by fans. I wonder what they do with that information. Like, d- d- I hope that it, it doesn't turn into the inmates running the asylum because that would be bad. Because think of like, think of like 10 random Habs fans on Twitter. How many of them would you like to run the, the Canadians? Better question. I, I shouldn't run the Canadians. You know, like that's, that's, that's how I look at it. I don't want to do that. That's incredibly not my job. And it's incredibly like, a very difficult thing to do that I wouldn't even know how to start. So one, one last thing I want to mention on this draft is, um, you know, how badly this fan base can at times fall for misinformation or at the very least unsourced and unconfirmed information. I'm sure you've seen the infographic from Instagram that says that Reinbacher received, quote, thousands of hate messages following the draft. And while I am not at all suggesting he received zero messages, that claim was not sourced and is likely a massive exaggeration. No one has corroborated this claim. And it sort of put this pendulum in motion that as it swung to one end, Habs fans were villainized en masse for the actions of a handful of fans who said some truly disgusting things, truly disgusting things that I might add that I only saw because people kept sharing them. People kept screenshotting and and sending it into the the timeline. Now that has swung back in the other direction where it seems like thinking critically of the front office in any capacity is a veiled hate message toward David Reinbacher. It's a narrative that I think has been spun out of control and and has acted as a bit of a smokescreen for the front office to evade some of the backlash for what was a very underwhelming draft, which is what I want to talk about on the show. That's what this show is here for. And I feel like I can't do that without people thinking I'm being mean to David Reinbacher, a kid who I've never met and don't have a mean thing to say about. So that's what this show is going to try to do, analyze this roster and how the front office ticks. The rest is noise. Unfortunately, social media loves noise. Like during the Leaf series a few years ago, when there was a tweet of a, of a fake Wayne Simmons quote where he was, you know, allegedly being asked, 
you know, Cole Caulfield's coming into the lineup tonight for the Canadians. Does that change how you play your game? And he basically, you know, the the fake quote said that it was basically they could put anybody in the lineup. We know how the line, this will go. We're a better team. Next question. And so many Canadians fans took that at face value and 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 treated it as if it was it was gospel. Like the moth to the zapper. Like it was just so I always have a hard time with with fans taking things like this and running with it because a lot of times they're they're being some they're being you know a, a fast one's being pulled on them. So just as a general practice, be a little more aware of the content that you're consuming, especially on Twitter right now, where it's sort of it's more anarchy than I think we 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 tend to believe because of the guy who took over. So just be careful. If you see a quote that seems ridiculous, look into it. That's all. All right, let's talk about the opening of free agency. Um, on the free agent front on July 1st, they were pretty quiet in Montreal, but they managed to take care of a few pieces of business. Um, I think the most uh, appropriate place to start here would be the Joel Edmondson trade. Joel Edmondson at 50% uh, salary retained goes to Washington for Minnesota's 2024 third round pick and Washington's 2024 seventh round pick. This was tidy work from Ken Hughes. Um, clears $1.75 million in cap space from the roster with the other $1.75 million due to come off July of 2024. More importantly, it clears a roster spot in a very crowded young blue line. And it shifts the defensive roster away from the Mark Bergevin types one more step. Um, Joel Edmondson came into Montreal on a pairing with Jeff Petrie and wildly outplayed my expectations. I remember arguing with people that, you know, he wasn't the kind of defenseman they should go after and certainly not one that they should give a, a $3.5 million cap hit to for, you know, four years or however long it was. And a lot of people used that first season as a see-told-you-so kind of year when it came to him. Of course, he was buoyed by Jeff Petrie playing some of the best hockey of his career. Um, because since the end of that first season, he's been really, really tough to watch. Uh, mistakes with the puck, missed assignments without the puck, stupid penalties, lack of foot speed. He's a defenseman of a bygone era, and maybe those still have value in the league. Obviously, someone thinks he does because they traded for him. But it has become a problem where guys like Harris and Kovacevic cannot, they cannot sit to allow Edmondson to play anymore. It's not fair to those players who have outplayed him. So let's place this in a trade tier list. Um, first of all, in reviewing the trade tier, I have moved the Dodonov or Guryanov trade down to C from B. It had promise, but Guryanov is likely gone and C just feels like a more realistic tier for that trade. Back to Edmondson. Um, this feels like a B to me. You get a third and a seventh for arguably your sixth or seventh best defenseman. Um, that's a really nice haul. And not to harp on Edmondson too much, but it's addition by subtraction in the sense that it allows younger players to escape the rotation on defense and become roster, you know, roster mainstays. So like I've done with the other outgoing players, here's your final line on Joel Edmondson, a Montreal Canadian. Uh, 140 games, 8 goals, 24 assists for 32 points, 269 blocks, 271 hits. That's what everybody came to see from him. 
Um, and with that, every part of the blue line from the Canadians 2020 Cup run, 2021 Cup run is gone. Um, Weber, Sherratt, Kulak, Romanoff, Edmondson, Petrie, all gone. In just two years, Ken Hughes and Jeff Gorton have entirely turned over the defense. That's, I mean, you know, as far as things that really ailed this Canadians team, there, there was a lot of them when Ken Hughes and Jeff Gorton took over. For them to turn over that defense as quickly as they have, um, it's impressive. Um, and it, it, you know, with 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 pieces still to join the team, I know Adam Engstrom is in development camp right now. Absolutely, you know, blowing everyone's socks off. Lane Hudson's still doing Lane Hudson things. Um, David Reinbacher also looks pretty impressive in camp, and I think just you know reading scouting reports on him, people are pretty high on him as well. The job that they've done on this defense since they took over, Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon, that is, it's 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 fairly impressive. All right, moving on. Uh, Leas Anderson signs a one-year deal in Montreal. Uh, continuing the theme of Habs getting guys they know, like, you know, Kent Hughes represented Alex Newhook, and now the Canadians sign Leas Anderson, who was drafted by Jeff Gordon's New York Rangers. Uh, One-year two-way contract for those, you know, potentially unaware because the NHL video game series misleads us. Two-way contract does not mean he uh, does not need waivers to go to Laval. It just means he earns a different amount of money depending on where he plays. So in the NHL, he'll earn $775,000. In the AHL, he will earn $375,000. So a pretty decent reason to try to stick in the NHL for Leah Anderson. Uh, he was drafted seventh overall in 2017 by Jeff Gorton's New York Rangers. They actually traded to get that pick on draft day. Um, Derek Stepan and Antti Ranta going the other way was Arizona's pick, and the Rangers got the seventh pick and Tony D'Angelo. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Leas Anderson was obviously a highly coveted guy by the Rangers in that 2017 NHL draft. Um, he's 24. He'll be 25 in October. Um, through his career so far, he really has not been able to stick in the NHL. Just 110 games between the Rangers and Kings. Seven goals, 10 assists, 17 points. Meanwhile, he's he's played particularly well in the AHL from what I've read and from what I've seen in stat lines. Um, he went 31 goals, 28 assists, and 59 points in 67 games last year in the AHL, I believe for the Ontario Reign, the Kings farm team. Um the player is probably never going to live up to the value that the Rangers spent on him at the draft. But this is a, a, a no-risk signing by the Canadians. You bring Anderson into camp. You see if Marty and the, the coaching staff can work with him and get something more out of him. Maybe simplify his game. Just have him focus on one thing he can do well. Um, at the very least, he's a nice training camp divider in the sense that if the Farrells and the, uh, the Waz of the world cannot outperform Leas Anderson... They will not stick on this roster. Um, he will need to clear waivers to be sent to Laval, but that will likely not be an issue. Um, I can't imagine that there's going to be a lot of teams vying for his services. Adding him to Laval for next season would be a tremendous boost for the Rocket. Um, they've they've made some additions this year. I know people who follow the, the Rocket pretty closely are excited about what they're building in Laval. Um so while I know people are getting sick of management grabbing up the dudes they know, this one costs nothing and makes 
you know, makes some sense for Montreal. The, there's there's a chance that maybe he becomes an NHL player at the end of training camp. Um, and if he doesn't, it doesn't really hurt us all that much. All right, one last piece of news in this one, and that is the Raphael Harvey-Pinard contract extension. Uh, he gets a two-year, one-way deal to bridge him to his next contract. $1.1 million average annual value, so that's the cap hit. First year is worth $1.2, the second year is worth $1. Can be completely buried in the minors if his play was a mirage last season, but I really wouldn't count on that. I think he's a mainstay on this roster moving forward. It's a, Look, it's a nice bit of security financially anyway for Harvey Pinard. Um on his entry-level deal, getting sent to Laval meant going from eight twenty-five to seventy, um, you know, thousand dollars. Which you know, seventy thousand dollars. I know to some seems like well, that's a really good living, but you know, to to have like you know, less than ten percent of what your your other salary would have been, it it matters to these guys, and it it should matter to everybody really. He's earned he's earned a bit of that security with his play last year. Really interested to see how he takes a step this year, even though he will likely be playing lower in the lineup. Um, but with a guy like RHP, if some of the top six guys falter in camp, you know, if Newhook can't can't figure it out right away, um, you know, we know that Raphael Harvey Pinard needs just one chance to make an impact on that top that top six. If you let him up there for a shift. He's going to make a difference. He's the perfect kind of guy to have lower in your lineup and then to pull up into the top six in a pinch if you need some energy on that top line. Um, a really, like, you know, it's, it's, there's, no, there hasn't been a ton to cheer about over the last few years. He's a really easy dude to root for who also happens to make the Montreal Canadiens a better hockey team. So easy win for both the player and the, and the team. Really happy to have him um, for the next two years and hopefully longer. All right, that's all I have in this one. Um, some housekeeping before I go. I'm going to take a bit of a break. Not sure when the next episode will be. I think Habs News will dictate the schedule for most of the summer. Um, when stuff happens, I will try to get behind a microphone. But, you know, just taking a look at what we have ahead, it, it doesn't seem like there's going to be all that much happening. Um, but I won't completely disappear. We'll find stuff to talk about. I'll try to get some guests on here so you won't just hear my voice. Um, also, in case you haven't noticed, and I mentioned it earlier, the situation on Twitter has become wildly unstable rather quickly. Um, I think we're all kind of looking for the next Twitter, um, whether that's Blue Sky, which I know people are still trying to get access to because the they're on an invitation-based system right now, or um, Instagram is creating threads, so Meta's making their their pitch to join the space. Um, whenever I jump ship to a new place, I'll be sure to add my new handles. Um, but the podcast will remain largely ineffective. So stay subscribed to this in your podcast feed and you'll know where we head next. And I'm sure I'll plug that the, the hell out of it. Um, but for now, you can find me on Twitter at maybe it's Ian. Um, and that's about all I all the places I am right now, actually. So that's why I'm pretty bummed about Twitter being uh, what it has become. Uh, that's it. The music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check the link in the description to head to his Bandcamp page to check out the rest of his stuff. 
All right, folks. Enjoy some summer. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.